Welcome back to the Librarian Linkover podcast. I am your host, Laureen Kennard. I started this podcast to highlight the value of librarians. Many of my guests have shown that their leadership and business skills have enabled them to seamlessly move into jobs outside of libraries. But I also want to highlight librarians working in leadership roles in libraries. My guest today is an example of an outstanding library leader. Scott Bonner is the award-winning director of the Ferguson Municipal Public Library. I'm excited to talk to him about his crisis leadership skills. Scott, welcome to the Librarian Linkover. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Appreciate it. Sure. Let's get right to it. Okay. When you went into public libraries, did you want to be a director or did that interest come out of the work? Uh, that interest came out of wanting to get a job. <laughs> That's a good um, reason. <laughs> I, uh, my first career was... was uh, well, I'd worked a little bit in libraries as an undergrad, and then my first career was in uh, ground level mental health. And so I worked in lockdown facilities uh, with kids and adolescents for a good 10 years. Mm -hmm. When that made me crazy, I went to uh, a backup career of working. I'd always bounce back and forth between working with kids and working with books. Um, so I decided to go into working at the library. Um, and I whenever mental health made me crazy, I went to uh, handle the map library at Purdue and then worked uh, processing cereals for a couple of years. I'd already done um, shelving and desk work and just kind of some evening supervisor stuff was an undergrad. Mm -hmm. And what led me to library school was that uh, my wife got pregnant with our first kid and someone needed to watch the kid and she was making more money than I was. And so I thought, okay, um, I am never gonna make enough money for us to live uh, doing hourly work in the libraries. Right. So I should probably get a library degree. Um, I'm gonna give up on my long-term goal of doing psychology research and uh, get a library degree and make that my career. And I'll, you know, raise our eldest for the first couple of years, be the stay-at-home dad while she works and uh, go to library school while I'm doing it. And so that's what I did. Um, I don't remember those years. <laughs> for a strange time. I was up with our eldest every day and late into the night because he didn't sleep well. And then whenever he would go to bed, I would do library school whenever the clock said, you know, a.m., Mm -hmm. and uh, take a quick nap and do it again. So I don't remember any of that stuff. Nice. I did want to be a academic librarian, a reference librarian. Mm. And I figured my fallback would be a children's librarian because both those things were interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And I did neither because the job I could get after eight months of searching um, was, you know, adult services, my first real professional library job that that I think of as my first real job was uh, adult services provider. Um, and so, yeah, I grabbed the job that I could get. Sure. It seems like adult services reference is many people's first professional job. Mm -hmm. Those jobs seem to come up. So when you first started your director job and you looked at the budget for the first time, what did you look for? First to see if I estimated right. Because <laughs> whenever I did my interview, um, I couldn't, they, the, the, the documents were not online where I could find them saying what the library's budget was. Mm -hmm. And so I looked up their tax rates and I looked up the property valuation and I calculated all that out and I came up with a number and I was like, 
I'm gonna, if my math is correct, your budget per year is around $400,000. And then I proceeded with all my answers and presumptions on that. And so whenever I actually got to see the real budget on my first day or two, I was like, oh, yeah, it's 410000 I had a good estimate. Nice. No wonder they hired me. I could do math. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah. But then I also looked at, um, so my predecessor had watched her funding drop ever since the 2008 crash. And it had just uh, shrunk, shrunk, shrunk the library. And it was down to where there was only one full-time person. That was the director. And everyone else was part-time. And a budget of only $400,000 to serve a community of 20,000 people in an urban wow. area. Right. Wow. So the library had had to constrict to the point where it was a book warehouse. And so part of what I wanted to do was see how much we could do toward focusing on programming and being kind of more responsive in more than just books. Um, and I was, you know, I had this bright idea that I would, you know, make no major changes for the first six months or a year to get a real sense of what the police was like. And then sure. I'll, and then I'll work on changes. Sure. <laughs> my first interim director job was mm -hmm. that same budget for half the population. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, how do you communicate bad news to your staff as a group or to an individual staff member? Um, I try to be very open and honest and direct. Um, mm -hmm. I usually bad news. Well, what is bad news? Bad news often is something has gone wrong or we have a problem but that also means we have something to solve. And so I usually approach it as a, here's a problem that we can solve. Here's how we got here. Here's the rationale behind what we have now. Um, here's the problem that creates, what have you got? And I usually try to talk it out as a group. Um, and I, I don't come into that conversation until I have an answer in my head, but I never lead with my answer um, because you know I've discovered that a lot of times staff have better ideas about how to solve problems than I do. Um, mm -hmm. That uh, if the if I if my idea does is strong, um, it is absolutely necessary to have other people to poke holes in it and find the flaws in it. And uh, also, it helps with, with a lot more with buy-in. So we usually approach problems or bad news as things that can be solved. Um, but the real heart of it is just to be open and honest, to admit whenever I've screwed up, to admit whenever, you know, there's a problem that, that I didn't foresee or whatever. In the end, as director, I am responsible for everything that happens, good, bad, or otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so my general approach is to uh, share the praise and collect the blame, if mm -hmm. you know what I mean. Yep, I do. Yeah. I do. I like to have a good idea and have the staff make it a great idea. Yes, that's a well, that's a great way to put it. I usually have a practical idea, and they make it a <laughs> great idea. <laughs> they both work. Yep. So how do I mean, you for oh, individuals? That's that's the same thing. It's just being open and honest, and very mm -hmm. straightforward with things about why they're here and, and what can we do about it. Good. Yeah. That's that's what I do also. Mm -hmm. So how do you manage a leadership role that is so public when everything you do could be in the paper? Hmm. Nowadays, it's not too hard. It's just a matter of uh, don't say anything really stupid out in public. <laughs> um, for a while there, whenever I was first coming on, there were a lot of political pressures. Mm -hmm. And we were, you know, very carefully walking a line about what we could say and what we couldn't say. Um, it really kind of ties into the whole thing of our libraries neutral. 
um, which I don't know. Do you want to get into that particular mess? Right. I Probably mean, if not. you want to, I can say something about it. But it's it's entirely up to you. Well, all right. So the way to keep from uh, um, people want to think positive things about the library, but they will seize on anything to make a negative about it. And so it's really about being careful to not say anything that's going to piss off a lot of people. Um, so library neutrality as an institution is a paper shield. Um, and it gives us a little bit of cover to allow us to be very much advocates and very not neutral because we're advocating for our people on the ground level day by day by day. And so the daily work is very much interactive and advocative and helping people that need the help the most, uh, while the institution as a, as a whole is going to be politically neutral. And as long as I can keep the institution's public statements um, careful enough, then we can get away with a whole lot of stuff. Right. When I said probably not, I meant I thought you were talking about talking to the community about it, like talking about politics we are in the library within the community, which you probably don't want to get into, but definitely on my podcast. I definitely wanted to know your answer to that question. It is difficult because a lot of people don't really understand how the library works. Mm -hmm. They don't even understand that it's government. They don't right. understand where the budget comes from. They don't understand qualifications that a lot of people have and what really is involved in managing a library. And for politics, they don't understand that a handful of powerful people in the community who are mad as hell at what you just said can organize what eventually becomes a vote to defund you out of existence. Mm -hmm. Or as a district library, you know, you can get rid of the director fairly easily. The board decides. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They I don't like you, something you did. I would definitely go before the library went, yes. <laughs> definitely. Uh, when you decided to keep the library open during the unrest in your community in 2014, you became known in the worldwide community for your leadership skills. Library Twitter was a buzz sharing your stories because of the respect we all had for you and your crisis leadership. Can you tell us a little bit about your decision process that you made to keep the library open? Um, it's like easy in retrospect to say, here are our philosophies and here are our approaches and here's what we did <laughs> and why we did it. Uh -huh. But in the moment, it was absolutely just making too many decisions with too little information and hoping it all works out well in the end. And if it doesn't, maybe I can apologize enough, right? Um, it started off with, uh, as far as the big approach, it started off with me making a poor decision, um, which was the day right after the first day that we we're supposed to be open after um, after Mike Brown was killed um, was a Monday morning and there was a big protest organized uh, at the police station, which is just out of sight because of a train trestle uh, from the library and it was huge and I what I made what I think is the right decision to delay opening that morning mm -hmm. um, because I didn't know if the police were going to use tear gas on a daytime crowd yet. And I didn't know if we could keep people safe if there was tear gas in the parking lot. And I knew that they would push people our way because we're on the poor side of the police station, not the rich side of the police station. So trouble coming, I delayed opening. The error was that by the time the police dispersed the crowd and pushed everyone past, um, someone had cut the internet 
right? Oh, wow. They'd cut the cable to the internet. And so, you know, I'd, I'd already long since sent all the staff home, told them I'd call them when it was time to come in. And I sat there alone in this building by myself thinking, okay, well, hopefully it'll come on real soon. Maybe I'll give it a little time and then give it a little time. Maybe I'll give it a little more time. And then eventually the day ended and it hadn't come on. And I, okay. And I went home and the next morning, uh, as I was getting ready for work, and I was taking my shower. I realized the water had gone cold and that's because I had stopped moving, stood there in the shower, just processing what I had done. Right. I hadn't done anything that would get any criticism. Everyone was fine with what I did. Staff were very happy with what I did, but what I had done is we could have been open without the internet. It's not fun. There's a limit on what we can do, but mm -hmm. we could have done more. And it was safe to have people here once the police pushed the crowd past, right? Because the police didn't use tear gas and there wasn't leftover tear gas. And so I kind of realized that, that I had fallen down and I'd taken an easy path. And I also realized that I had done it in part because I was alone in this building and not consulting with anyone else. If I'd have looked at someone next to me or called someone and said, hey, I'm going to stay closed for a wait, I would have realized what I was doing. So at that point, we kind of had a philosophy. I, I came up with like a, like a little philosophy. Um, and it was in some form that day, but I refined it later, which was if, op if safe, open. If open, do everything you possibly can, right? And from that point on, we, that's what we did. Every day I would come in, if it's safe, it will open. And when we're open, we're going to do whatever we can. And we did a lot, a lot of thousands of things over the next mm -hmm. few months while the protests were ongoing in Ferguson, um, including uh, we served as an ad hoc school for a week. Mm -hmm. um, we hosted the um, uh, Small Business Association for their, while well, they were giving out loans for the businesses that had been burned down. We were um, like a gathering center for all kinds of people that were coming in uh, to uh, to prepare for the protests and that kind of stuff. We did, we served everyone who came in the door and we made it a point to be very publicly doors wide. Everyone who comes in the door is welcome, um, which was a contrast to some degree. It was a political decision that sounds like a not a political decision because a lot of people in Ferguson were like, these outsiders are coming into protests. And we were like, you know what? Some of those protesters are come from Ferguson. Mm -hmm. Some of them work here at the library <laughs> and a lot of those protesters come from outside. They still have a legit reason to be here. And so we kind of made it a point to be open. Now that sounds neutral. We throw the doors open to everybody. Mm -hmm. um, but in that context, it was a political decision, uh, paper shield. Right. Um, and then uh, later on when the grand jury announcement came um, for the officer that had shot Mike Brown, um, we made it a point to stay open to our normal time because it was be safe to do so because the crazy was going to happen after that. And it did and places got burned down and the next day we were open during the day, but we closed before it was nighttime before it got dark because we knew it was not going to be safe. And so, you know, that was our philosophy if safe open, if open do everything we can. We can if, continued doing that all the, all the way through 2014 and the beginning of 2015. And, uh, you know, there's lots of nice feel good stories I could tell from there, but that's the general scope of things. And it's all those little individual feel good stories like the school for peace and that kind of stuff that got people to notice us. Um, I would not say we were necessarily that I was a great leader. I think my staff kicked ass or can I cuss? Sure. It's a podcast. 
Yeah, staff kicked ass. Staff did a lot of great stuff. Um, uh, we worked our butts off when we about lost our minds, and I still have some PTSD symptoms from then. Um, but uh, whether or not that was all good leadership or good decisions, that's in the eye of the beholder. Well, I think you're being modest because you can't have a good staff without a good leader. Because they mm, do, I was like five weeks old as a leader whenever <laughs> everything happened. So, you know. <laughs> then you're a natural. You're a natural. But I think they still look to you. Like whenever yeah. you started a leadership job, they still look to you. The, the director jobs I've started from day mm. one, they look to me to know everything and solve yeah. everything. So they expect when you come in, they just expect that you will know everything and solve everything, be able to do everything. So I don't think, uh, I think you're selling yourself short. Well, all right. Because I'm Thanks. sure they took their lead from you. Right, right. But, and whenever I push this out there and said we were going to be open and do things, they, uh, they kind of had to play along. <laughs> they were the ones that were running the desk whenever I was having like hordes and hordes and hordes of children doing school in here, mm -hmm. you know, and I was out there too, but, but not, not, not the same way that they were. I was busy doing, dealing with the press instead, but whatever. Yeah. I don't want to get lost in those details. <laughs> I understand uh, that it was totally a, a Fred Astaire thing where I was dancing, but they were dancing backwards and in heels. <laughs> Well, I think overall, though, I mean, it really is a model for crisis leadership in libraries. I know you've been around the world giving talks, and mm -hmm. I mean, I think that says a lot for how you handled everything. Could have yeah. gone badly. Oh, God. Could have gone yes. south fast. Yes, absolutely. We navigated that. Mm -hmm. We did I a think, lot of good, and that's what counts. Right. And I think it does lend to, there is some value in the library. Like the community gets the library and what the library does. And that's why everything was cool at the library. Yeah, I think we probably wouldn't have been able to get a tax increase in 2018 if we hadn't done what we did in 2014 and shown that we could, you know, be responsible with the money. Right. Yeah. Then last year, pandemic, when many public buildings had to be closed during the pandemic, you moved some of your computers out to the sidewalk so the patrons could safely use them and staff could more safely provide assistance. So how did you come up with that idea and what are some other ways you've been creative to maintain library services during the pandemic? First, can I just say uh, how much of a whipsaw it is to go from, we're gonna throw open the doors and let everyone in and that's how we do the most we can to, we have to close the doors and keep everyone else <laughs> because we don't wanna become a disease vector, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, it was right. in the end, it's doing the best thing for the community and you have to be focused on what people need um, all the way through in every step, but it was just, it was personally hard for me to go from we serve the public by throwing open the doors to we serve the public by closing the doors. That was a really tough decision. It took me a minute to get to that point where I could even make it. Um, but as far as um, who came up with the idea of putting computers out, uh, group idea. I want to say that I pitched it first, but I pitched it in a smaller way, like let's put a computer in the foyer because mm -hmm. uh, we have a foyer that's like four foot deep <laughs> and eight <laughs> foot wide between uh, two sets of double doors. So we could have like let that outer double door open and let them use it and, and uh, you know, but, but I do things like uh, with a group right I, I gather my full-timers together because now now that we've got a better budget and we've mm -hmm. been able to focus more on programming that kind of thing we now have like five full-timers nice 
Yeah, and uh, and about the same many as many part timers too. We're just doing. We're able to do a whole heck of a lot more day right. by day now than we were when I first started. Um, but anyway, I gathered the full timers together and how are we going to do this and what are we going to do and 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 we hammered it out. And that the idea of a, a, a computer in the foyer became, let's put the photocopier slash fax machine out there too. Let's make everything free. Let's not charge for anything, and let's also well, we can push tables out front. We can put laptops on the table. Let's put a tent over the table so they don't get too bright in the sun um, and whenever weather is good enough we will also have let them get access to the computers outside um, and we you know like uh, my children's librarian um, Amy Randazzo came up with the idea of putting tarp in the book drop because we were going to quarantine books for four days mm -hmm. we didn't want staff to have to touch the books because it just wasn't didn't feel safe at the time and so uh she had the idea of putting a tarp in the book drop so you just pull the four corners of the tarp up and lift the whole thing out and drop it Perfect. in the book in the back room it's okay. maybe not the nicest thing for the books but it keeps the humans safe books are durable um, yeah well the books the books all mostly survived um and and uh, just a bunch of stuff like that we had to do a lot of online programming and zoom programming like everyone else has done uh we've had remarkable success with our take-home craft kits we can't make enough of them um and we've done uh, uh we've hosted uh, the um because the mayoral candidates couldn't do their usual public forum we hosted a forum through zoom we did the same thing for the city council candidates uh, a few weeks ago um that kind of stuff we just kind of like find all the ways we can reach out there and do a thing um the big difference is that uh, we went from if open or if safe open if open do everything you can to be as open as you can safely be <laughs> do as much as you safely can <laughs> and so that's right. how we kind of approach everything what's the boundary what we can do without um, creating significant risk for the patrons or for staff did you get any pushback from anyone um, in the community or in government for saying um, last time you wanted to be open to everybody everybody but now you're saying you don't want to be open to everybody everybody you know did you i mean even though they're two different situations when you really wanted to make sure you were open to everyone not just your own residents oh the strongest the time the strongest pushback came from in my own heart um and everyone else i don't think we got a lot of pushback i mean there's a little rumblings here and there there are more rumblings now than there were then uh honestly um mm -hmm. people were willing to reopen things um but yeah the real pushback came from inside me and darn it i had a thought just a second ago that seemed important at the time. It'll come back. Right. So it was pushback, pushback about being closed. I've lost it. I'm sorry. That's okay. Can you give us some ideas on how librarians can be ready to lead during a crisis? Because most crisis, I guess, by definition, you don't have a lot of prep time. I mean, there are right. things you can prepare for, mm -hmm. but not everything, not every crisis you can prepare. You can prepare for a tornado drill or you know, you can drill mm -hmm. things, but what you've had to deal with, you can't really prepare for. So do you have some ideas on what librarians can do to think about ahead of time? Yeah, I'd say every step of the way, focus on needs, what your actual patrons need, what your staff needs. Um, generally speaking, um, I try to define the library's mission broadly. 
so I can do more without violating the mission of the library. We still have to be a library, even in a crisis, but we can define things broadly. And so what are your needs? Um, one is to, one practical thing you can do is get to know your potential partners before the crisis happens. Mm -hmm. um, whenever we did the School for Peace, I had to, I spent a day kind of scrambling around trying to figure out how we can get breakfast and lunch for the kids and snack in the afternoon. If I had already known about well, I knew about Operation Food Search, but if I had had a contact at Operation Food Search before we start, before that all happened, then it could have been a phone call instead of scrambling around for a day, right? So know your potential partners. Um, get involved with the crisis planning orgs. Um, there are government groups and there are non-government groups that do crisis planning, that think about this stuff ahead of time. Um, and if you're hooked into that system of crisis planning for the community, uh, you're going to be on the top of their minds and they're going to think about you when they need a resource. And that means that you can help more. Okay, so, and you also can be more aware of what you can do as far as who you can lean on. Mm -hmm. um, and everything, everything we did from beginning to end was not done alone. It was all done with partnerships. It was all done with uh, bringing in expertise. It was all done with other organizations and other people and volunteers and tons and tons of volunteers, um, as well as our staff, of course. But don't think that the library does a thing alone. The library finds a partner and does a thing with others. Mm -hmm. The library provides means for other people to get to your community and for your community to get you to other resources. Um, and the last thing would be just to know your community so that you can know who to ask what do people need mm -hmm. and how can we meet it? Do you have a community foundation? No. Um, in one of my libraries, we had a community foundation that was all, was really hooked into all the nonprofits because they are philanthropic and they fund grants and stuff. So right. that was, a, that was a good resource for me. If yeah, we just, in we have area staff. That has one. We have staff that do as much of that as we can. And then uh, we hope that the board can help with that kind of thing too. Mm -hmm. But we don't have a separate organization just for that. What suggestions can you give librarians who want to make a move into management or into a director position? Um, first off, I'd just like to rant about how we have devalued everything that isn't a director position. Right. It's hard to have a career as a child children's librarian mm -hmm. um, and still you know, have a professional career that isn't hourly or isn't just hourly and that pays enough to actually raise a family. Mm -hmm. You know, part of the reason I got my degree was because I couldn't make enough um, as an hourly worker. When I got my degree, I was making, you know, that moved me from 20 something K a year to 30 something K a year. Um, now I have four kids and the house full and uh, I need, I need to move into a director position to even make enough money to, to, to put us in a comfortable position. Right. And I was kind of tired of being dreadfully poor. I grew up dirt poor and I didn't want to be that way forever. Um, and that's part of what pushed me into being a director. Um, so the other thing I would say, so yeah, I wish our profession would value mm -hmm. non-director work and pay what is worth um, and stop turning everything into a part-time job that uh, you don't need a degree for and you don't need to, I mean, not that I think degrees are everything, but a part-time job is where they're never going to pay you enough and they're not really going to teach you how to do it and, and you have to kind of scramble along and hope and never have a career. Anyway, sorry well, for all that. No, that's okay. Um, in one of my director jobs, 
I paid my circulation staff $10 an hour, 15 hours a week. Uh-huh. And I was trying to get a raise and the board was like, those are good jobs. And I'm like, they're not terrible jobs, but right. they're, they're also working at Walgreens. Yeah. Like- and they're also working at the gas station because they're not looking at this as like, I look at it, you know, as the library mm-hmm. degree is the director, because they're not looking at it as a career. They make $10 an hour, 15, you know, 15 hours a week. That isn't anything that they need more money. Right. If we want to keep them, if we want them right. to grow and learn and want to do more, we have to pay them more. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. And then once they do decide to make libraries their thing, we have to not tell them, then you have to become a manager because not everyone wants to be a manager or right. should be a manager. Right. Right. Um, so anyway, the other thing I would say is um, I took the long path. I had probably... I don't know, maybe seven, eight years of experience before I went to library school and mm-hmm. um, a good 20 years of experience by the time I became a director. And that was working up from being, you know, shelving as a student help through front and back house all the way up through the system. And so one way to do it is the way I do it, which is to work your way up with increasing responsibility um, and don't just jump straight into being a director. Because if I would have jumped straight into being a director when I first got my degree, um, I would have been the worst director ever to step foot in the library. I've seen some people that you find out people that get different jobs and you're like, they just got out of library school and now they're a director. How are they doing that job? Right. Well, and maybe they're brilliant and maybe they can do it, but I sure have been. I just, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a mystery. So, so work your way up. Yeah. <laughs> so you've kind of talked about a couple of times about your reasoning for going to library school. So based on your mm. career so far or what your career plans are, which you don't have to talk about, um, does that reasoning still hold? Is this, is this really, is this, are you doing what you thought you would, would be doing or wanted to do? Yeah, I'm in, I'm in my dream job now, which is to be the director of a small library. Um, and that's exactly what I want to do. I don't want to go into a big system um, and become nothing but a, a figurehead character. Not that I'm not dissing people in big systems. I don't know really what they do. I just know that I like where I am at, where I am director and I make get to make decisions, but I also get to interact with people every day and I get to spend some time on the desk and I have, you know, I have desk hours every day, that kind of thing. It's good to have a variety of things that I can do. Um, and so I'm right where I want to be. Um, the decision worked out better than I thought it would to go to graduate school, uh, to go to, to library school. Um, though it was a hard path up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, my decision worked out just fine for me. Um, and the reasons for doing it to go from 20K a year to 30K a year. Yeah, that worked out too. Right. Not that 30K right. is great, but you know. <laughs> it's more than 20. Exactly. And you have more potential. Yeah, and that's, that's really it. I mean, is this going to be a career or is this going to be another job? And I mm-hmm. decided it would be a career. Right. Mm-hmm. So where can people find you or your library on, on social media? They want to follow all the great things you're doing. Oh, um, let's see. We're on Facebook. If you look for Ferguson Municipal Public Library on Facebook, you'll find us pretty quick. Um, we are also on Instagram. Just search for it there. Uh, we are on Twitter at Ferguson Library. And you got to spell them both out because there is a for Ferguson Lib, which is a 
wonderful little library in Stamford, Connecticut, which is not us. <laughs> so make sure you get the right Ferguson library. Our logo right now on Facebook is a green circle. So you, if you get a green circle with our logo in it, then, <laughs> then, then you got the right one. Um, and if you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter. Um, that's my main thing. And it's at Scotty Bonner. S-C-O-T-T-Y-B-O-N-N-E-R. Um, Scotty is my legal name uh, because my dad was a Star Trek fan. No kidding. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yep. Well, thank you so much for doing this. This has been fun. It's been, it's been great learning, you know, some of your thought processes and how you've managed everything. Yeah, I do things like everyone does, I think. <laughs> I followed you on Twitter for a while, so it's interesting to get a little more info on some of the okay. stuff you've done. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to Scott Bonner for being my guest today on the Librarian Linkover. It's been really fun hearing from listeners who have thanked me for doing this kind of podcast. I am thrilled that so many librarians are finding value in this content. Please like and follow the Librarian Linkover on your favorite podcast app, follow on social media, and visit thelibrarianlinkover.com. Thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.